If you look at page 13 of your worship folder, you'll find our scripture text this morning. We are in the midst of a year-long series on human sexuality. If you're visiting or new, congratulations, you came. (laughs) This uh, sermon series is uh, a story. I'm trying to tell a story. And um, you might think of this sermon series as kind of like the war and peace of sermon series. It's got many chapters and many um, parts to it. And uh, this morning we're looking at this, ish, um, this question of the image of God and power. So uh, look with me at our scripture text. Hear God's word to us this morning from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through verses 31. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all of the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And so it was. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Oh God, we, as we come to your word to reflect on central questions of what does it mean to be a human being created in your image. God, we pray you awaken our hearts this morning to the glory and the dignity of being image bearers, but also to the responsibility and the authority and the power that you have entrusted to us. Wherever we find ourselves this morning, whether of people of faith, comfortable with the language and the worship of the Christian life, or whether those who perhaps stand on the outside or at the margins looking in, wondering what it would like to be to believe all this stuff fully, help us to know, God, that you are always moving towards us, that you are the God who created us, that seeks relationship, that is not willing to turn away from us, no matter how ugly or shameful or frightened we might be. Meet us this morning in your word and your spirit. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. (coughs) To be created in the image of God is uniquely to be a bearer of power and authority and responsibility within God's creation. And what this means, I think, quite astonishingly, is that power and authority are good. Power and authority are good. They come before the fall, just like work comes before the fall. This, of course, I think, is um, not a view of power and authority that our culture broadly embraces. I was always thinking about the way that we think about culture or power in our culture. There was four big 
assumptions that are largely negative about power and authority that came to my mind. And some of you know them quite well. You all know them, whether you can articulate them as principles is another story. But the first one is this. Power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. You've heard this, right? This is a famous statement by Lord Acton. Power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it's the idea that to simply have power is to be corrupted or to be moving towards corruption. And the more power you have, the more corrupt you become. Another assumption about power in our culture is one that says this, and it's peculiar to what you may call a postmodern world. And uh, Frederick Nietzsche is the first one to express this. But it's this idea that all truth, all claims to truth, especially claims to truth that would, in a sense, put limits on how we understand ourselves as human beings in the world with respect to sexuality and gender and a variety of other things related to creation. All, all claims to truth are actually veiled claims to power. That at the end of the day, there's no such thing as truth. Truth is simply a disguise for our grabs at power in the world. But following this is this idea, and this would be the third claim, is that when we think about power in the world, we think about it as sort of um, as, a, as, a, as a thing or an entity that it has, there's scarcity around. And it's like money, we think about it. Um, you know, there's only so much money or there's only so much power and uh, we're all fighting for it. It's a zero-sum understanding of power. So in other words, if I have power and you try to take it away from me or I give it to you, that means I have less power. And that's how we tend to think about power in this world. But, but fourth and finally, the, the last idea related to power and authority in our culture that we kind of have absorbed is this idea that true freedom or autonomy, think about this word autonomy. Autonomy means self-rule or self-law, right? Autonomos, self-law. True freedom or autonomy, as we have embraced freedom in our culture, is incompatible with authorities that are external to us. So in other words, freedom and authority, these are like water and vinegar. They do not mix. They will always be separated. There will always be tension. And so the increase of authority in your life means the decrease of freedom. That's how we tend to approach questions of power and authority in our life. And so when we read in Genesis 1, what theologians call the cultural mandate, where God says, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. Subdue it. Rule it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air and the heavens. Twice in our text, there is this repetition that human beings as image bearers are given power and authority. Subdue and have dominion. What is this all about? How does this work? Over the past three weeks and one more week, we've been looking at this question of the image of God, and I want to give you just a recap and kind of help you understand where we're going. I've been trying to lay foundation stones, planks, and we'll come back to these again and again. So we first started talking about the image of God as the original relationship, that to be created in the image of God is to be created for God, and the dignity of the human person is found in relationship to God and nowhere else. Last week, we looked at this question of the image of God and fruitfulness, that to be created in the image of God is to be those who have been given this command to be fruitful 
to have creative, generative fruitfulness in life. And this week, we look at this question of that to be created in the image of God is to be endowed uniquely over the rest of creation with power and authority in creation. And then next week, we'll look at this question of male and female, that we are created in the image of God, and what does that mean for gender? But the question you might be asking is, what does power have to do with sex? What does power have to do with sex and sexuality? Now, some of you are thinking, well, quite a bit. And you'd be right. Power and sex, think about just the movies, right? They always go together. And it's not just incidental that they are there together. Because at the root of sexuality is a power, right? It's the power to create new life. Think about that. Be fruitful and multiply. And then, subdue. See, see, the extension of power and authority is part of this fruitfulness in our life. But the questions of sexuality are also questions about who has authority over my body. The sex act itself is to surrender power and to assert power. Sex and power are not just incidentally related. They are interwoven. It's a tangled mess. And I'm not going to untangle it this morning, but I, if we're going to understand human sexuality properly, we have to actually reflect on the positive understanding of power as God intended it. We've got to set that straight. And so this morning I want to reflect with you on what is the meaning of power and authority as image bearers. Why did God intend this? What does it mean to have power and authority in the context of a creation that God said, it is very good? So there's three things I want us to reflect on. The basis of power, the purpose of power, and the exercise of power. The basis of power, the purpose of power, and the exercise of power. Had a conversation with my son. Just this past week, I'd picked he and his sister up from school. And there's a ritual. They have to put all of their things away, hang up their bags, put away their lunchbox, take out any homework. And I was telling them, before you can watch your show, you have to do this. And my son's man said to me, you're not the boss of me. And I said, no, actually, I am the boss of you. (laughs) And he says, no, God's the boss of me. And I said, yes, you're right. God is the boss of you, but God put me in charge of you. (laughs) Who, Who has authority? And on what basis do they possess authority? How is it that I have come to have authority over this little five-year-old's life? Right? That's the question. Why why do I have authority in my son's life? And very, I mean, most of you know this. It's because you're his father. You're like, right, I'm his father. In a sense, I inhabit the office of father. And that's that's the first point I want to make. What is the basis of power? Power, or authority rather, is probably the better term. They're not the same thing, power and authority. Authority is always has its basis in office. And now when you think of office, we think of the office of the presidency or secretary of state, or you think of judges. You know, we, we have this sense of office, like elected office. But an office is actually much bigger than that. To be a father is its own unique office. To be a mother, to be a sister, to be a brother is an office. To be at work, to be a boss and to be an employee, to be a student, to be a teacher. These are offices in a sense. These are, these, are, these are roles that we play that have specific responsibilities and expectations. But almost all of them also come with a certain kinds of power and certain kinds of authority. 
although not always the same. See, to be created in the image of God is to be an office bearer in a sense, in the most original kind of sense, in the most organic kind of way. To bear the image of God is to bear responsibility for God's creation uniquely as set apart from the rest of animal life. It's to be invested with this command. Have dominion, subdue, and it comes with special rights and privileges and tasks. And, you know, we could go in deep. I just want to draw in a couple of reflections from Genesis 1 through 2. First of all, and I've already mentioned this, is that what sets human beings apart from the rest of creation, especially in the light of fruitfulness, is the command to subdue and to have dominion. See, all the animal life and plants are, God commands them, be fruitful and multiply, but only of human beings, as God says, take dominion and authority. And this distinguishes us. But when you read, and in, in, uh, Old Testament scholars, as reading the, the Genesis 1, 1 and 2, talk about this is really, in a literary sense, if you read the text, what God is doing is, is creating the creation before the fall is like a cosmic temple. It's a cosmic temple. And the Garden of Eden is the Holy of Holies. It's the inner sanctum. And Adam and Eve, what are they? They're priests and they're kings. They're priestly kings. And so they have this royal sort of, uh, they've been invested with a royal power and authority. And that idea of image in the ancient Near East, which the biblical writers are influenced by this, the, the images in the, in the ancient Near East was often only used of a king who would image God. And it was only kings. And here what the Bible is saying is actually, no, it's not just kings that are privileged to image the gods. It's actually humanity universally. And whereas the kings would set up images of themselves over conquered parts of, of different territories, and the, in a sense, the image of God as God's people, we represent God's rule throughout the world. And this is part of the reason why God says, be fruitful and multiply. Fill. Expand. Expand my rule, my glory, my presence. Some of the myths of the creation, one is called the Eniki Nima, which is, I think, a, Bab- or a Sumerian myth. And the origins of human beings in this myth actually come because there is a group of lesser gods that have been commanded by the higher gods to uh, dig canals and trenches and to provide food for all the gods. And so the lesser gods decide that they're going to create human beings so that the human beings can do the work that they don't want to do. And so human beings and almost all of the ancient Near Eastern myths of creation are there to, they're like slaves. They're servants of the lowest order to do the work that the gods don't want to do. And what's interesting, when you read Genesis 1 and 2, you don't encounter this language of servant. What you find is steward. Work is not dehumanizing work that the gods don't want to do. Actually, work is glorified work that has dignity. That in a sense, you're sharing in the power of God himself as creator. And it's a very different understanding of work. And so when you think about this idea of office, to be an image bearer of God is to bear an office. And there's dignity to it. And this is the very basis of relationship. See, again, when we think about office, and people actually will, I know when people have a problem with me, they'll, they'll, and they, they feel a distance, they won't call me Chris, they'll say pastor. And, it's, and, it, and, and that's totally fine. You're, I mean, that's completely, completely appropriate. Why? Because there's a way that you're recognizing, okay, I, I disagree, or, you know, there's a distance here. You're exercising an office. You're not just my buddy and my friend. 
See, we often think, though, of office as something that's sort of officious and, and sort of, you know, arid. And, you know, you see even in the debates how people refer to one another, whether it's Madam Secretary or Hillary. See, there, there's a sense, though, with office, we often wonder, how does this work with relationship? But to be an image bearer, again, recognize that God has given you, invested you with power and authority and responsibility, and this is the very basis of the relationship that you have with God. It's the very basis of the relationship that you have with God. Think of the parable of, the, of those, um, the stewards that we looked at from Matthew 15, where Jesus um, you know, gives, gives a talent to, to four different of his, ser- of his servants, and they do different things with it. But what is the phrase that, that's so important? Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, enter the joy of the master. See, to, to be a steward, to, to be responsible with the power and responsibility that God has given us is actually to enter the joy of relationship with God. And again, I think the child-parent relationship is a perfect illustration of this. I don't let my kids call me by my first name. Why? Even though it might seem more personal, it's actually less personal. When my kids say, Chris, you're usually joking. They're not old enough yet as teenagers to sort of really stick the knife in you. Uh, No offense, teenagers. But when you call your parents by your first name, it's a way for you to distance yourself from their authority. And it's a way, actually, to depersonalize the relationship. Think about this. See, father and mother, dad, mom, it recognizes a role but it also recognizes intimacy, right, and trust. And it's the same with God, the relationship we have with God, and it's the same kind of relationship that we as image bearers have to creation. See, God shares his power. That's the thing. When you read Genesis 1 and 2, you see God sharing power, him giving power, not just to, most especially to human beings, but also even to the created order itself. But a question you might have in your mind is this. Well, If creation is very good, right, if it's perfect, why is there even a need for somebody to subdue it and to have dominion over it? Many of you, and I I wrestle with this too, you read that language, subdue and have dominion. Those are words that actually are used of kings and armies conquering other kings and lands. There is nothing there that's gentle and easy. I mean, it does have, a, it does have a, a strong sense to it. And many, many, uh, through the years, Christians have, in a, have used this text as basically justification for all kinds of admire, environmental degradation and all kinds of justifications for treating the creation as that, hey, creation's for us to use as we want. There's a great deal of exploitation, I think, of the created order that has been justified by a surface reading of this command. But when you go deeper into it, what you find actually is that it does not mean the same thing that we often think of it. What is the purpose of power? The purpose of power is for flourishing. The purpose of power is for flourishing. God gives power and authority to human beings, not for, simply for their own self-advancement, but for the sake of creation's own flourishing and fruitfulness. When a child is born, ordinarily, it is a complete human being, right? It's not missing anything. It needs nothing. I mean, it needs care, but it's complete. And we wouldn't look at that child and say it's not good or very good. 
and precious. And yet, we also recognize that that child is not fully formed, that there is incredible potential and beauty and life that is locked into that little, little infant that someday will be realized. And see, when you think about the creation, when God created the world, and he said, very good, that was the birth of creation. That's not where God wanted to keep the world. And God gave human beings, just like God gives us children, to nurture, to develop, to bring to full fruition. This is at the heart of the mystery of creation and power. And it's, an, and it's a very different vision from the way we think about creation and power in our culture and in even the way the ancient peoples. One more, I know I'm giving you guys an, an education in um, ancient Near Eastern mythologies, but they're very helpful to understand what the biblical text is getting at. Because Genesis 1-3 through was written in the midst of these, and in a way is a critique of those ideologies. Another, um, this is the Babylonian mythology called the Enumi Elish. And it's the story of the beginning, and it's a very different understanding of the beginning of the world and the use of power. Because the world is created out of a conflict of the gods. Tiamat and Marduk. Marduk slays Tiamat, rips her body in half, and with one half creates the heavens, and with the other half creates the earth. And then Marduk finds Tiamat's husband, the leader of the army, and he slays him. And from the blood of Quingu, it mixed with clay comes the human race. See, this is a vision of power that is associated and bound up with violence and bloodshed. And that's, so power is always a zero-sum game, right? Power is always given in order that you might conquer your full. But in the biblical world, you have this completely different understanding of power and a completely understanding, different understanding of creation because God does not create where there is some pre-existing force out there, some chaotic force that he has to tame and master. As the Christian tradition says, God creates from nothing. Creatio ex nihilo. In other words, when God created, he spoke the world into existence. It's not as if he was taming some evil force and giving order to it. He's saying, let it be. And it was. Andy Crouch, in his book, um, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power, which is a great book if you want to continue to reflect on some of these themes of power, he, he, he draws this just beautiful very insightful distinction from the first chapter of Genesis about what he calls God's justive power. The justive, to be, it's a grammatical mood that English doesn't really have. We mark it by the word let it be. Right? And, he, and Crouch says, if you might think about it this way, think of Star Trek, Jean-Luc Picard, and he's on, the, he's on the deck and he's giving commands and he says, make it so, and he lifts his finger and people do it, Right? This is in great contrast to the way God creates, because God says, let there be light. Let the expanse fill the sky. Let the animals flourish. Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. See, this let it be is, is the Joseph. It's a, it's a, it's, it is a command, but it's a different kind of command saying, make it happen. This is so. It's a different kind of power. It's a power that elicits. It's a power that calls forth. Here's what, um, this is what Crouch says. Let there be does not have to assert power. It assumes it. It does not need to impose power. It indwells it. Let there be also suggests the multiplication of power that is not found in the preemptory phrase, make it so. 
When the words, let it be, ring through the universe, new being comes into existence where there was none before. And each being with their own capabilities and potential and sphere of influence. See, the let it be is, and, and you, you find that unusual language, because in English we don't have. God says, let, it, let the fish of the sea, they, let them team, let them swarm. See, that's creative power of God. It's not a power that is resisting um, another alternative power, but it's a power that pulls forth. This is the kind of power that is understood when God says, have dominion and rule. It's a power for flourishing. Three quick um, reflections on what this means, practically speaking, to possess this power in our lives. And the first is this, is, and I've already alluded to this, but the power of being an image bearer and the authority of being an image bearer is an unlocking power. It's a, it's a power that calls something forth. Back in, I think, the 12th or 13th century, I forget, 14th maybe, there were some goat herders in Ethiopia that were watching their goats eat berries off a tree and start acting really strange and weird. And they decided to investigate, and what they found was coffee. Twenty sixteen, coffee is everywhere, right? And we think, you know what? A coffee tree is good, but an espresso is very good, <laughs> right? I mean, there is a sense in which here you had this tree that nobody had ever thought to even check inside to see this berry that was very good, that was good, but yet somebody these 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 Ethiopian um, herders decided to put it in a pan and roast it and see what happened and pour water over it, and coffee was born. And it's hard for us to imagine a world without coffee. At least I cannot. But think that this is the unlocking power. And you can apply this to so many things in life. That the power that God has given us to unlock, right? But this is a collaborative power as well. Interesting, where God says, to the sun and the moon, I set you over the night and the day to rule. You will rule the day and you will rule the night. God gives power to his very created order itself. God is not worried about losing power. He gives it. It's collaborative, but there's a creative dimension, and this gets us back to the essence and the heart of what we talk about in terms of sexuality. See, the power God gives human beings uniquely is the power to create new life, is to bring souls, eternal souls, into existence that never lived, that never existed. That is incredible, friends. It's incredible, that human beings have given that kind of power and that kind of responsibility. And it's not just the having of children, but you have to understand fruitfulness has its core right here. And as I said last week, not everybody can get married, and everybody who can get married not always can have children. And yet you have to see, though, that, that real fruitfulness, that real meaning in life is around the image of God and image bearers. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Paralandra, tries to imagine a world before the fall. It's a part of his space trilogy, and I think it's his best book, where he, the, the main protagonist, Ransom, goes to Earth, and he goes to Paralandria, which is really Venus, and there's only two people that live there. It's the green woman or the lady, who is a figure of Eve, 
But also Satan has sent one of his, his, things, uh, one of his servants there to try to tempt the woman and to cause her to be disobedient. And the, the substance of the story is about how God sends ransom to sort of intervene in this. But what you see there is this amazing picture. Lewis imagines this amazing kind of world unfallen of, of created, you know, you want to try to think about what does animal life look like before the fall and humans' relationship to it? Read Perlandra. It's incredible. But there's this, towards the end of the book, where uh, Ransom has gone, and he's gone to this great battle against his enemy, Weston, and he comes up, and then he sees, he hadn't seen in a long time, the woman and the man, the lady and the king. And he comes up, and, and, and this is, it's just incredible. He falls at their feet, and this is what he says. He says, do not move. Do not rise me up. I have never before seen a man or a woman I have lived all my life among the shadows and broken images. Oh, my father and my mother, my Lord and my lady, do not move me. Do not answer me yet. My own father and mother I have never seen. Take me for your son. We have all been alone in my world a great time. See, here's the thing. Ransom confronts or he meets two human beings that have withstood temptation in God's world and have been faithful. And they're just overwhelming in their glory and their beauty. He says, I have a father and mother, but you are, you are like nothing. And there's this incredible power and glory bound up with this ruling couple in the created order. See, that's the image of what Adam and Eve were meant to be, what all of us were meant to be, to bear a power and a beauty and a glory where you're tempted to fall down and worship it. But I don't want to end there, even though that would be a good place to end. The basis of power is the office of the image. It's the office, right? And the purpose of power is flourishing. But we know that the use of power in our world and authority is a very dangerous thing. And we should be worried. (laughs) We should be cautious. And so I want to reflect for the last, um, on this last point, the exercise of power. The exercise of power. What does it mean for us as Christians in the light of the fall to exercise power in our lives? And there's two virtues that I want to remind you of that we reflected on over the past four months. Humility and gentleness. To be wise stewards of power and authority in your life, you need both. And to lack them is to do great harm to yourself and to those around you, especially the more power you accrue in your life. And humility, first of all, in relationship is this. It's, the, it's your recognition in life that there are powers and authorities that you need. You need authority. And you have to submit. And you have to recognize that as a good thing. And gentleness is learning how to use your power for good. To bring flourishing. Real quick. Humility is a recognition that we need authority in our life. And that we need it for our own growth and flourishing. That you will never become the human being that God created you to be without power. Just like you can, I mean, to not have a father or a mother, or to have those relationships really broken, does some things to you. 
that you have to come back into a redress later on in life. We need authority. It is a good thing. And I think this is, you know, authority, obedience, submission. This is like hate speech for the South in the 21st century. Like, these are trigger words. That you hear these words and you think the worst possible thing. Obedience, submission, authority. And I think this way that it gets manifested in the church, in our lives, is this. Is that we as, you know, we might think of ourselves as very faithful, but there are times in life when we encounter things and we don't understand why God would command this. It makes no sense at all to me. I can't make, it doesn't make sense. It's not reasonable. And so often we refuse to obey the things we don't understand. As long as I can understand it, I'll obey it. But if I don't understand it, if I don't have a reason for it, then I'm not going to obey. But friends, this isn't obedience. And I would remind you of the garden where Adam and Eve, and God says, eat of everything but one tree. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God gives them no reason. The assumption is, just trust me. Just trust me. <laughs> you know, so often in life, our instinct is not obedience. Our instinct is always to question. And what I'm not saying here is to think, you know, we, obedience is this mindless thing. Not at all. Look at the story of Mary if you want to think about true obedience that's thoughtful. But there is a sense in which we often fall to the pride where we think, I know better than God. I know better than his word, and I'm going to trust my own instincts. And it's like my children oftentimes, they'll ask me for something, and I'll say no. And they say, why? And I say, because. Just trust me. Why? Just because. Now, it's not as if I don't have reasons, but if I were to explain the reasons, you're still not going to understand. So just trust me. Trust me. See, that requires humility to do that, because you don't always understand, and you don't always agree And yet, it is precisely, precisely in these moments in your life, the moments where there seems to be a massive division between what you, is very clearly the command of God, and what you want to do with all of your being. But it is precisely in these moments when you don't understand, but you obey, that trust and love and faith in God and understanding come into your life. It's only after you obey that you come to understand. That's, that is a foundational principle in the Christian tradition. Obey, and then you understand. Friends, we desire authority. We all desire authority in our lives, whether we recognize it or not, because we realize that without it, we can't actually become the people that God intends us to be. But the second virtue that I think is critical as we think about the exercise of power and authority in our lives is gentleness. And here, I would refer back to a sermon I preached about four months ago called Gentleness as Flourishing Power. But I just want to give you quickly a couple thoughts here. Gentleness is the wise use of power for the sake of another person's flourishing. It's not the absence of power again. It's, not, it's, it's, it's the self-limitation of your own power as you seek to draw out another person into full life and flourishing. You know, we know this with children. Why do we often, most of the time when we talk with our children, or you get down on their level. You don't speak to them and shout down to them. You, you actually, you even, you, you, and you, you, 
you, your speech, you, you speak in language that they can understand. You condescend. And, and to condescend is not to be patronizing. It's actually to be loving. You're gentle, right? Because you realize that you would crush them if you didn't withhold your strength. See, true power, and I, I want to just draw your attention back to that beatitude of Jesus, where he says, the gentle, the meek, these are those who shall inherit the earth. Now, this is not the order of our culture, right? Who shall inherit the earth? Who shall inherit America? The one with the most money? The one with the most power and the most savvy? Right? It's all by force and violence and power and assertion. That's how we get things done in the world. But Jesus shows us an alternative way. It's the way of vulnerability. It's a way of vulnerable power. Because true power, that's creative power and flourishing power at its heart, is vulnerable. It's self-giving. Bree, Breen Brown, uh, Brown has, says in a great talk, a TED Talk on vulnerability, says, vulnerability is the birthplace of love, creativity, and joy. Vulnerability is the birthplace of love, creativity, and joy. See, and vulnerability is its own kind of power of self-giving. I give myself to you, and I can be wounded by you, but when I give myself to you in this way, out of this comes flourishing. I like to think of vulnerability as touchability, because to have a body as a human being and not to be just a soul is to be touchable, to be accessible. Jesus Jesus in the Gospel of Mark, there's a story of the woman who had been bleeding for 13 years or 12 years. And there's this throng of people and she is thinking to herself, if I can just touch him, I'll be healed. And this is what Mark says. He says, she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up And she felt in her body that she was healed of the disease. And here's a a great line. And Jesus, perceiving power went out of him, immediately turned and said, who touched me? See, Jesus, the Son of God, the one who created the heavens and earth, is in the midst of this crowd. He's going to a little girl who's died. That's where he's going to raise her from the dead. And here's this woman who's bleeding. He, she reaches through the crowd and she grabs a hold of his garment, believing that if I can just touch him, I will be healed. See, that's power, friends. God Almighty himself becomes vulnerable. He's with the hoi polloi, he's with the masses, and he can be touched. And with that touch comes new creation. And that's the, the first creation, God speaks, let it be. But the new creation, what does he do? It's from his broken side. New creation power is vulnerable power. It's the blood, it's the sigh that goes out, and that's where new life comes, friend. See, that's the model of power in our culture now, of what God has given us. And Jesus demonstrates that with us. Let's pray. Oh God, we give you thanks that Jesus became touchable, that you became touchable in the person of Jesus Christ. And that this power comes into our life to heal, to create true fruitfulness and blessing, and it comes at the expense of your own life. Teach us, Lord, to be a people of gentleness and humility in this world, 
that demonstrates to this world what true power is. It's the power for new life. It's the power of healing. It's the power of reconciliation and love. And it came at the cost of your own dearly beloved Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.